you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis in chapter 23. Praise become to read God's word. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, it's one of the things, isn't it, that you tend to often get sermons, I hope you do, about the resurrection on Easter Sunday and the incarnation at Christmas, but I think it's great to preach about the resurrection as often as we can. So, it's the only hope. So we're going to read Genesis 23. We're going to read Genesis 23. There are Bibles at the back. We're working our way through the book of Genesis. And if you've been with us the last few weeks, you've probably, like me, been holding your breath. You've been curling your toes. We've done Genesis 19. We did Genesis 20. We did Genesis 21. We did Genesis 22. Now we're at Genesis 23. And you can see I can count. Maths is a strong point with me. So, Genesis 23, Abraham's cave. Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kirileth Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my lord, you are a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land. And he said to them, if you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machapilah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as property for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city. No, my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron, in the hearing of the people of the land, but if you will hear me, I give the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My lord, listen to me, a piece of land worth four hundred shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham listened to Ephron, and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So, the field of Ephron in Machapilah, which was the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. 
After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And the field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for a burial places by the Hittites. And may God bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Now this is about death and burial. This is the first funeral in the Bible. And, but it's also about the glorious hope of resurrection. Death, burial and resurrection. It's our only hope. As David was praying, I was just struck. It's the only hope worth living for. The only thing worth living for. All around us people are petrified, fearful and panicked. Everyone who has full tanks of fuel in case they can't buy any tomorrow. And that we, we were empty after the youth group came from Abbey Green. And everyone has enough toilet paper at home to mop up Derwent water. Why? We're fearful of the worst flu for ages. Because of social distancing, no one has any immunity anymore. People are fearful. But are you building Jerusalem here on earth or are you living for the kingdom to come? Are you building new Jerusalem here or are you living for the kingdom that is to come, the everlasting city? The Prime Minister cracked a few jokes, I don't know whether you saw it in his speech this week. And I, thought, I think one of them, he was talking about crime, I don't know what it was. And he said it wasn't surprising that crime was down because he'd locked us up for 18 months. I said, thanks a lot, do you know what I mean? I didn't ask you to do that. But friends, we have a hope. We have something worth living for. We have something glorious awaiting us because Jesus Christ is risen. And that makes all the difference. And as I prepared for this, I think I should preach this every Sunday that Jesus is risen because it's our ultimate hope. Ultimately, we don't hope in vaccines or the NHS although we're thankful for them, because our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That is where our hope is. So if you're desirous of a resurrection unto glory and eternal life, can I suggest to you from the Bible that Jesus Christ is the only way. The only thing worth living for is Jesus. I dare say that there is no one in this room this morning who wouldn't count it good news if you were told that there was a way that you could have a perfect body forever and ever and live in everlasting bliss with ever-increasing joy. Do you want that? I do. I want that. I wouldn't mind an everlasting body. And I imagine most people in this room are willing to confess that Jesus is the first fruits of resurrection. But how many of us now are living life today in hope of that future in the later? We say we believe that, but how many of us are living life today in view of the hope that is to come? Would anyone look at your life or look at my life and say, surely they're living for a future he cannot see? Would people conclude about your life 
that there is no explanation for the way you spend your time, the way you raise your children, the way you go about your days, your time, your energy, the way you spend your money, the hope that you have. Would people conclude that you're living for a future they cannot see? Or would they conclude, hmm, they're pretty much like everyone else? Whatever they can get now, whatever they can see now, whatever they can acquire more today, whatever they can see with their own eyes. I, I would suggest to you this morning's scripture is all about the hope of resurrection and eternal life. Maybe you didn't think that when I read it. It isn't one of the most famous chapters in Genesis. And it's easy to overlook. We've just come from Sodom. We've just come from the birth of the promised son. We've come from the, from the story about Ishmael. And this is easy to overlook in a book with so many well-known stories and wonderful biblical characters. Why should we pay attention to Genesis 23? Why should we pay attention to the first funeral in the Bible? It's sandwiched between the birth of the promised son the sacrifice of Isaac, and then chapter 24, we're coming to Isaac and Rebekah. Can't we just move on to there? Could, you know, couldn't you just li- left this one out? But here we have the burial, the funeral of Sarah. But it's very, very important. For starters, if you look at verse 1, it is important because it is the death of Sarah. As I said, this is the first death and burial. We've had plenty of death, but this is the first burial recorded in the Bible. It's the first death of Abraham's immediate family. It's the first time that the death of a woman is noted and we see that Abraham mourns for her. So that's the first time we have a formal mourning period. She lived a long life, 127 years. Little fact here, did you know this? You might, you might win a trivial pursuit on this one. That Sarah is the only woman in the Bible whose age of death is given. Only time with a woman dying were given her age of death. I thought well, that's because none of the women wanted <laughs> to know anyone to know how old they are, because a lot of women I know are all 21 and a bit. But here we have Sarah who lived to be 127 years. It says something about her significance as the matriarch of the people of God. But perhaps you noticed in reading or listening, that only has a couple of verses about Sarah. Only a couple of verses. One and two, she dies, and Abraham mourns. Nineteen and twenty, she's buried in the cave. But most of the chapter, everything in between, is about this negotiation between Abraham and the Hittites. Is it more important, then, that the the death of Sarah is where Sarah is going to be buried. See, some people look at this story and they say, what a bunch of wonderful people. What a wonderful story to teach business ethics. Every new conversation is more generous than the one before and more courteous and Abraham is bowing over here and they're calling him my Lord over here and everyone wants to give to everybody else. No, 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 no. You take it. No, 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 you must. No, you. It's proof that they were English. It's proof that they were English, isn't it? 
or British, sorry. And, but here we have not only simply courtesies and generosities, but it's actually the established protocol of how they would have done business in the ancient Near East. East, Near East. This has every hallmark of being an official business transaction. And they're probably falling into familiar scripts. Not that anyone handed them a script, but they knew what was expected and how you conducted yourself in these sorts of negotiations. If you look at the back and forth and the familiar language that is repeated. Verse 4, Abraham says, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place that I may bury my dead out of my sight. And in verse 6 they respond, Hear us, my Lord, you are a prince of God. Among us, bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. That's the refrain we hear over and over. Verse 8. Abraham says, if you're willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me. Verse 11, they come back. Now it's Ephron the Hittite who says, no, 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 my Lord, hear me. I give you the field, I give you the cave. In the sight of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Verse 13, Abraham says to Ephron, But if you will, hear me. I give you the price of the field. Accept it from me, that I may bury my dead there. And once again, verse 15, they come back again. You want to say, <laughs> I thought it was done already. But they keep coming back. Eph- Ephron the Hittite again says, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver. What is that between you and me? What is that between friends? Bury your dead. So over and over and over and over. I want a place to bury my dead. Listen to us. Bury your dead. Thank you. Let me give you another option here. I want to bury my dead. Very good. Bury your dead. And they're following an established protocol, actually, of how they might negotiate the tomb. We see that this was meant to be a binding contract worked out in public. Um, Cross-cultural communication is really, really interesting because my wife and I learned from Vienna how different cultures communicate. The most famous one I have is when a, a Finnish businessman was doing business with an English businessman. And the Finnish businessman, as he would, of course, invited the English businessman to the initial negotiating meeting in a sauna. In a sauna. In Finland. So he went to this sauna and he, and, and so the Finnish guy said, to how much? And the English guy said, let's say a hundred, just for argument's sake, for the story's sake, a hundred. Silence. 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 And after about what seemed to the Englishman to be half an hour, which probably was only 30 seconds, he goes, no, I understand, that's a lot of money, I'll make it 95. Silence. And after another eternity, he said, yeah, I understand, that's a lot, I'll make it 90. And it went on, and eventually the Finnish guy stuck his hand out, or whatever, about 80, whatever, and they concluded their business. Many years later, after a successful 20 years worth of business, the Finnish guy said to the English guy, you're crazy, you English. He goes, when you said 100, I thought that was a fair price, but you just kept on talking, so I went on to see how, how, how low you would go. 
We don't like silences in England, do we? If somebody, if, but in Finland, it's perfectly okay to be silent, whereas we can't stand silences. We think somebody's mad at us. It's just the way, so this is a typical kind of negotiation in those days. I want to bury my dead? Okay, bury your dead. But I want to bury my dead? Okay, bury your dead. So it's, it was an acceptable form of negotiation in those days. This might, this is, what a, this is how a binding contract was worked out in public. Moses, the author, here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, wants us to see this clearly. So if you look at verse 13, for example, and he said to Ephraim in the hearing of the people of the land, we see again in verse 16, Abraham weighed out for Ephraim the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites. So we hear in this several times, this was done in the hearing of the people. This is a public transaction. And more than that, we have record that it takes place in the gates of the city. Did you pick that up? Verse 10, now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of the city. And verse 18, to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites, before all who went in at the gate of the city. You remember Ruth? The book of Ruth, one of my favourite books in the Bible. At the end of that chapter with Ruth and Boaz, and all the formal transaction that takes place at the gate of the city. So it was the place for public business. It's similar for us to say, meet me at the lawyers, where you conduct an official legal transaction. And so the negotiation takes place in three stages, very quickly. Stage one, Abraham asks for property for a burial place, and that's verses four through six. And in verse 4, Abraham begins by saying, I'm a sojourner and foreigner among you, which are semi-technical terms. We may well say a resident alien. Peter would say an elect exile. God has promised multiple times that the land that he's in is going to be his land. But as of yet, he has no legal title to it. Abraham has no legal title to any of the promised land. No possession of the promised land. So he's saying, I'm a sojourner, I'm a resident alien, I'm here. You've welcomed me here. I'm allowed to be here. But I have no legal claim to this land. I'm a sojourner and a foreigner. I would like to buy a burial plot for my wife. And the Hittites answer, you're a really important man, you're a prince of God. They say to him, go ahead, bury your wife in the best of our tombs. Take your pick, whatever tomb you like. Now that may seem very generous, but it isn't what Abraham asked for. Their willingness to say, absolutely, bury her in one of our tombs, is different than selling a burial site. Now a stranger may say, May, may be in town and say, they say, oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. Go ahead, you can use our public cemetery. But this isn't the same as possession, possessing something. The gift could easily be rescinded. It's like as if you were to, to approach your neighbour. It's often done, isn't it? And uh, say, could I buy an eighth of an acre of your land so I could build a garage, so I could park my car? 
and your neighbour says, no big deal, you can park your car on my drive any time you like. It isn't what they asked for, is it? It's a nice offer, but you think, well, that's not what I asked for. I want to know that it's my property. And how do I know you won't change your mind? Or maybe when you give your house as an inheritance to your children, they will say, no, you can't park on our drive anymore. So it sounds generous, what they say, but Abraham wants more than a tomb of theirs. He wants a tomb of his own that he can purchase. That's stage one, the negotiation. Stage two, that's stage one, stage two, is Abraham asks that he wants to buy this particular cave of Machapilah from Ephron, verses 7 through 11. So he says in a very formal kind of protocol, I want to do business with Ephron, son of Zohar, over there. I'll pay full price for the cave at the end of the field. Very particular, he wants, I'm going to pay full price. Now look at what Ephron says in verse 11. No, my Lord, hear me, I give you the field and I give you the cave that is in it. Again, that sounds generous, but Ephron knows and Abraham knows that he doesn't really mean to give it. He's, he's being courteous and being polite. And this is their way of doing business. What he really means is he's trying to upsell Abraham. I always, you know, I, you know, on the phone, you get on the phone and you report a problem and then you suddenly realise 20 minutes later you've been upselled. Ever, ever, ever had that? You know, when you suddenly not, not only own a telephone and a broadband line, but you also own a shopping cart as well. But, you know, you wanted the cave. Oh, brother, I'll give you the cave and the field. But by, are you looking for a sofa? I've got a wonderful sofa here. And can I show you a lovely sideboard? It's made of real mahogany wood. How about this coffee table? This dinner set? I'll throw it in for you. So Abraham says, okay, I'll purchase this, the cave along with the field. And later we hear that it's near Mamre, which is where Abraham and Sarah have spent a good portion of their lives Mamre is near Hebron, 20 miles south of Jerusalem, towards Beersheba, the south end of Canaan. That stage is one and two. Stage three, Abraham now asks Ephron to name his price. Again, in the courteous language of the ancient Near East, it sounds Ephron is wanting to give it to him. But Ephron is naming his price. Make no mistake about it. Verse 16, Abraham listened to Ephron and Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver that he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. Ephron doesn't mean to give it to him, he's naming his price. Now there are different kinds of shekels, there are different ways that they weighed the shekels. So we have to be careful with comparison, nevertheless. As far as we can tell, and commentators agree, this seems to be a high price for a cave and a field. A thousand years later, David purchased the temple site for 50 shekels. Again, if you be careful, complete comparison. 1 Kings 16.24, Omri purchased the entire site of Samaria. It's like purchasing a state for 6,000 shekels. Jeremiah buys an entire field for 17 shekels. So the fact that Abraham in Genesis, the time of the Genesis is willing to pay 400 shekels is a, a generous price by whatever comparison you use. Ephron has him over a barrel. 
in front of all the Hittites. Abraham is wealthy, they know it, he pays it. And in verse 17, the last paragraph shows the legal conclusion of the matter. So the field of Ephraim in Machapelah, which is to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave that was in it and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over to Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went in at the gate of his city. That is just like we would have in our day. If you buy or sell a property, or if somebody makes out to you a piece of property, they didn't have the fancy surveying equipment that we see today, but everyone would have understood what they were doing. It's clear. It's that field, those trees, that land, make it over to me. And that's like asking the conveyancer to conduct the legal search, maybe, I don't know, to see if there are any easements attached to the property. How about that road? Has it been adopted by the county council yet? My word, what a palaver. And then the blanket all discrepancies, as I found, maybe you found, because of COVID, we're working from home. Yes, it is the hot tub you can hear bubbling in the background. So it will take 16 weeks instead of four. But it seems to me that you know, the fear has driven all common sense out of the window. And the answer to anything going wrong now is because of COVID. It's because of COVID. No, they had private property, they had legal contracts. They probably even had lawyers. Give it over, make it over. You get the field, you get the cave, you get the trees, you get the whole area. It is a legal purchase. And we're meant to see that. In chapter 14, after Abraham defeated the kings, the king of Sodom wanted to give Abraham something. Abraham said, I will not take a gift because God has promised this land. I'm not going to be a debtor to any of you. I'm not going to be taking gifts from the Canaanites but I will make a legal purchase that I paid full price in the presence of the hearing of the people at the gate of the city that is now legally mine. So why does this matter? Why does it matter? I guess you could, could say it was interesting to learn about these ancient Near East negotiations. I didn't much like your story about the guy from Finland, but anyway, it's, you know, it's, I guess it was interesting. What is the point of this? In Genesis. What is the point of this for me and you? One commentator says there's no point about this chapter apart from simple biographical interest. And it does look at it, the chapter could have gone quite well from verses 1 and 2 and you skip to verses 19 and 20. Sarah died, she needed to be buried and she was buried in the cave at Machapelah. And then we move on to Isaac and Rebekah. There's no mention of God, apart from the Prince of God, which may be just saying that you're a mighty prince amongst us. There's no mention of covenant. There's no mention of blessing. There's no mention of promise. But my friend, this story has everything to do with the God of blessing and the God of promise. Because later on we find in Genesis that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, Rebekah and Leah are all buried in the cave at Machapelah. So it is important, but it's not, it's much more important than just family history. This is about faith in the promises of God. Abraham is not from here. He didn't go back to Haran. He didn't go back to Ur of the Chaldees for his burial plot. It would have been understandable for Abraham if he had said, I followed God all the way here, but I'm not from here. 
So I'd like to be my wife, I'd like my wife to be buried from where we're from, because one day that's where I want to be. But he doesn't do that. And Moses, the author, wants us to be crystal clear where Abraham is at this point. And you need to take note of this when you're reading through narrative in the Bible. What are the bits of information that seem to be extraneous? Well, they're usually there for a reason. Verse 2, Sarah died at Hebron in the land of Canaan. That's where Abraham is. And then bookending the story at the very end, verse 19, Abraham buried Sarah in the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. Abraham is in the promised land in Canaan, which is why it's so significant that he didn't just bury Sarah in their plot, not just that he was given a generous provision for her death, but he came into possession of a piece of the promised land. And this cave was one tiny sliver of the promised land that Abraham now owned. Way back in chapter 13, the Lord told Abraham, verse 14, the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if anyone shall count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. What a promise, but that was decades ago. And until this moment, Abraham didn't own any of it. He was a foreigner, he was a sojourner. But now he has a field, a cave, and some trees, but he bought it. He bought it at a price that was probably too high. Why? Because he believed that the Lord would fulfill his promise, even if he had not seen it, and even if he would not live to see the fulfillment of it. It's his way of saying, we're not going back to Haran. We're not going back to Ur. This is our home. And though we have nothing but a cave and a field and a tree, we believe that God is true and he will give us all of it. This is Abraham's cave of faith. In Jeremiah 32, the prophet Jeremiah buyed a parcel of, bought a parcel of land just before the people were due, about to be exiled to Babylon. So Jeremiah is saying, bad news, bad news, the Babylonians are coming. They're going to conquer us, wipe us out. We're going to be taken away. It must have been a real buyer's market. It's not like going on right move or purple bricks or zoopla or white syringes, whatever you've got, and you put on a full price offer and then by the end of the day there are 15 offers higher than the asking price. It's not Keswick. But this is a great time. They had fire sales going on in Jerusalem in Jeremiah's time. They're about to be conquered. Is that really a good time to buy something? Jeremiah says, yes it is. Because we're going to be conquered, we're going to go away, but I believe and I trust God that we're coming back. So here, the purchase of this little sliver of a burial ground in Mamre, 
is a giant act of faith in the promises of God. Abraham is staking out a tiny territory in the promised land, believing that this is the first fruits of something far bigger. It's a down payment of what's to come. The promise to Abraham didn't remove the prospect of death. Didn't mean that Sarah wouldn't die and Abraham will die. But Abraham believed that death isn't the end of the promise. My friend, death is not the end of the promise. Do you believe that? I believe that. That death is not the end, but the beginning of the promises of God. Nothing else makes any sense without it. That death is not the end. Death is not the end. Death is the beginning of the promises of God. Hebrews 11 said that Abraham and Sarah died in faith. They died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country that is a heavenly one. That's why I asked at the beginning, are you building New Jerusalem here on earth? Or are you living for a homeland to come? So here's the point. Because God is calling you. He's calling me. To live for what you cannot see. Based on what already has been seen. He's calling you to live a life. To live a life for what you cannot see. But based on what has already been seen. That was true for Abraham. Think of all that he had seen. He became a rich man when he went down to Egypt. Even though he was a liar, God blessed him. And God gave the best of the land when Lot chose poorly and went down to Sodom. God gave him victory over those kings, blessed him even more. God made promises to him in Genesis 15. And then God eventually, in his old age, when they were way past the years of childbearing, gave them a son, and as he was about to sacrifice his son, God provided a ram in the thicket. Abraham has seen so many amazing things, and now he buys a sliver of the promised land to testify to God and to his family and to all of us, I believe that God has yet more that he will do for me. Do you believe that God has yet to do more for us. That was true for Abraham. It is true today. I'm going to go to the resurrection. If you think of what the disciples saw 2,000 years or so ago on Easter Sunday, the women raced to the tomb on Sunday morning. They were not expecting a resurrection. Don't forget that. You know some people say that it was just wish fulfilment no, 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 absolutely not. If you, know, if you want something bad enough, your mind plays tricks on it. They weren't wishing for it because they didn't expect it. They had no expectation that Jesus was risen. They were shocked. They went to anoint his dead body. And the angel said, he is risen. Just as he said. And then Peter and John raced to the tomb. And Jesus appeared 
multiple times, time over time. Sometimes as, to as many as 500 people at once. 500 people, as many that were queuing outside Morrison's in Penrith for petrol this week. And we have recorded in the New Testament the eyewitness testimony of what they saw, the risen Lord Jesus. My friend, if you don't take away anything else this morning, remember this, that God is calling you and calling me to live for what you cannot see based on what already has been seen. God's promises are not exhausted in this life. Paul says, if you're only living for this life, you are for most people to be pitied. And yet all around us, we see people living only for this life. There ought to be something about you that doesn't make sense to other people. People, people ought to say, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. It just doesn't make sense. I cannot see it. I don't understand it. That is right. You can't see it. Because we were meant not to, meant to live, we were not meant to live by what we see, by what we cannot see in the expectation and hope of what God will do for us. God's promises are not exhausted in this life. I can just imagine God's word to Abraham, or imagine Abraham speaking to his family saying, you see that tomb over there? You see that tomb? You see that cave at the end of the field by the trees? Machapila? You see that tomb? The tomb where Sarah is buried? You see that tomb? That tomb means that we haven't seen the end of God's promises for us. It looks small. It looks insignificant. But I have faith that God is not done with us. And there are bigger, better promises to come. And I believe sincerely that God would say to you today, do you see the tomb? Not the tomb of Machapila, where Sarah lies, but the tomb of Jesus, where he is no longer. Do you see the empty tomb? Because that means that we haven't seen the end of God's promises for us. That means that we have eternal hope. We haven't come to the end of God's blessings for his people. My friend, if you're a Christian today, your best life is in glory to come. Your best life and the closest you, you, you get to hell is living here. But the opposite is true too. So what are you living for? Just what you can see? Just the things that you can acquire? Just your fame and reputation? Is that what you're hoping for? Are you fearful this morning? Are you scared? Are you proud? Are you thinking that you're better than everyone else? God says, no eye has seen, no eye, ear has heard, no heart has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So just as they looked at the tomb of Sarah, God says, look at the tomb, not in Mamre, but outside the walls of Jerusalem, it is empty. My friend, the tomb is empty. And that tells us that God's blessing is yet to come. And there are bigger and better promises awaiting the people of God. We're going to sing in a few moments the line of the hymn. See the tomb where death has laid him. Empty now, its mouth declares. Death and I could not contain him. For the throne of life he shares. Come and worship. Come and worship. 
Worship Christ, the risen King. Live your life for the future you cannot see because of the history that has already been seen. I wish it was Easter Sunday because I could just, then I could just say Christ is risen and would say he is risen indeed. But it's true. He is risen. He is risen indeed. May God bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.